stay hungry, stay foolish. For those people who are new to the Innovation Show, we exist for the purpose of bringing you information to provide you. For those of you unfamiliar with the Innovation Show, we exist to bring you content that you may not hear elsewhere to help you make the best decisions for yourself as an individual and for the organizations in which we work. And it's with absolute pleasure that we do so every week. One of the reasons we can bring you increased amount of information is because of our fantastic sponsor, Zai. Great people to work with. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into today's episode. Today's book drops us into the unfolding drama, tracing the rise, fall, and rebirth of cryptocurrency through the experiences of the major players across the globe. We follow Silicon Valley entrepreneur Brian Armstrong and the turbulent rocket ride of his startup Coinbase as he tries to take Bitcoin mainstream while fighting off hackers, thieves, and zealots. Our guest today keenly observes the world of virtual currencies and what happens when a startup tries to disrupt the world of high finance. This is the surprising story of the origins of cryptocurrency and how it is changing money forever. We welcome the author of this book, Kings of Crypto, one startup's quest to take cryptocurrency out of Silicon Valley and onto Wall Street, Jeff John Roberts, welcome to the show. Aiden, such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Jeff, it is fantastic to have you with us. Great news for our audience. I have a copy of this book up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance to win this magnificent book. I thought I'd tee you up to tell us a bit about your backstory with a quote from the book. It goes as follows. I first encountered Bitcoin and Coinbase in 2013. I was then a reporter for the tech blog GigaOM, where I reported on collisions between law and technology, including the then novel phenomenon of cryptocurrency. On a hot July day, I set out to investigate an event called Satoshi Square, which took place in a corner of New York's Union Square. Believing I would need a Bitcoin to participate, I bought a Bitcoin for $70. I intended to expense it. I'm glad I forgot. I ended up selling it half a year later for what I thought was an extremely high price of $800. I thought that would be a way to both tee us up to understand this phenomenon of cryptocurrencies and how it's changing so much, but also for your background as a reporter and your understanding of both law and technology. I guess the short version is I was a tech reporter, and I like covering tech, even though I'm not particularly proficient at it, because just tech changes the way we live. You know, think of iPhones and TikTok or whatever. And that's my interest in tech, is how it sort of changes culture and society. And then in the course of covering tech, one day I heard about Bitcoin, reading about it a bit. And I was a reporter in New York City at the time. 
And I heard there was someone called Satoshi Square. Satoshi, of course, is the guy who founded Bitcoin. And that was just a name that uh, people in New York had given part of Union Square Park, one of Manhattan's kind of, you know, major parks there. So I went down to check it out and report on it. And I knew so little, I thought I'd better get a Bitcoin. So I bought one for 60 bucks from Coinbase to go down. I thought it'd be like a flea market and let's go buy some things. And I didn't find anything for sale. But what I did find was um, the strangest mix-up I've ever seen. There was some like Wall Street traders and these guys. You know, you've seen them on TV or in real life, $5,000 suits, really polished. But they were, you know, sitting there swapping money with these crypto anarchist people, you know, dreadlock, kind of underground characters. And I was wondering what the heck is going on here. And that's sort of when I first got the bug and just, you know, underscored to me the diversity of people that uh, crypto attracts. And there's something new here. So ever since then, I've been sort of following crypto and its various twists and turns. And there's, you know, there's booms and there's bubbles, but it gets bigger every year. And back then to everyone a lot of people are like oh bitcoin's a fad it's going to go away and you know here we are 10 years later and you know bitcoin is uh, is very much here it reminded me jeff of when i was a kid in my early teens 12 13 14 i used to buy records with all my pocket money I used to go into this grungy dingy record store spend hours in there and buy one record and go home but what used to happen is if the record went to the charts we became disenchanted with it. We were like, oh no, they've gone mainstream, the sellouts, and you'd no longer be interested. And it reminded me of what you experienced when you went to this event. That's a great analogy. Yeah, I've actually, so I was talking to someone else about that. It's a bit like punk rock. You were, it sounds like you're more drum and bass guy. I was more of a, a punk guy, but... Um uh, and <clears throat> anyways, what I'm bringing this up for, yeah, punk rock. Um, and there's always that thing of selling out, selling out. And then like Green Day came along and that was gap punk and reviled and stuff like that. And I think we know that phenomenon of kind of in-group, out-group. And early Bitcoin was very much like that. Um, Coinbase was reviled because it made Bitcoin too easy for people to get. And real crypto believers then and now say, you know, that's Coinbase is not your keys, not your coins. Own your own Bitcoin, own the technology. And so, you know, there's sort of this tension and that's part of what my book is about too. Um, to a, a degree, the purists are right. If you really believe in decentralization and Bitcoin, you don't use a service like Coinbase. However, if Coinbase hadn't come along, I you know I think it's it's likely that Bitcoin would still be very small and sort of a you know kind of a subculture rather than the mainstream thing it's ended right now. So I don't know how you feel, Aiden, about like your music going popular. You know, <laughs> you can see the good in it as well as the bad. Well, I certainly wish I bought Bitcoin instead of records because I'd be able to afford to actually buy a record label at this stage if I did it back then. Speaking of purists, one of the characters that you follow closely in the book, and he's almost like the arc of the entire story, is Brian, the founder of Coinbase. Let's tell our audience a little bit about him because he's the key character in this story. Brian Armstrong is the founder of Coinbase, the, still the current CEO. Um, you know, frankly, he's just a nerdy guy who grew up in Silicon Valley and was sort of typical path of other engineers. I think he worked at, he started a tutoring company, worked at Airbnb, nothing very remarkable. And then I think he went traveling in Argentina and South America. And it's funny, I've heard this story from a few like Bitcoin entrepreneurs that opened their eyes, um, seeing the hyperinflation in South America, be it Venezuela or Brazil or in, in Brian Armstrong's case case Argentina and this notion of like being at the mercy of a you know a government that just recklessly prints money so that the money you earn this week is worth half as much next week because they've simply printed too much of it and that's what drives a lot of these early crypto people and some of them now too especially in light of the recent bouts of stimulus payments 
I'm not really ideological like these people, but a lot of them are like, hey, you know, this thing's going to blow because the, 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 you know, the central banks are printing money like crazy, so, so go to Bitcoin. So that's what's driving a lot of these early people, including Brian, which led him to start Coinbase. Well, Brian was certainly a punk rocker, if you want to call him that. He was a purist. But let's use Brian as a way to talk about how Brian got into this in the first place. It was that famous paper, that white paper written by Satoshi. And Brian read it three times, as he often does, for different reasons than the rest of us. But maybe let's use that and to explain Satoshi. Yeah, this is a common story. I mean, I've read Satoshi's paper too. I'm not very technical, though, and maybe not smart enough to really get it. But, you know, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But I'd heard about Bitcoin already, though. But uh, a lot of people, including Brian Armstrong, read it. It's just eight or nine pages. And it's it's sort of, you know, uh, not particularly remarkable in some ways, except um, Satoshi was the first to figure out, because I guess people have been working on anonymous digital money for decades. There was a group of uh, people in San Francisco Bay Area called cypherpunks that really liked cryptography and wanted a new type of money. And the craziest explanation or theory for Bitcoin, I don't know if it's true or not, but one of the early Bitcoiners and probably one of the guys who is or worked with Satoshi is a guy named Hal Finney, a programmer who's now, he died of ALS uh, years ago. But a popular explanation for why he started Bitcoin is he crypto, crypto how do you say this word? He cryptographed, I can't say the word, he froze his body. Uh, Aiden, help me, you know, when the you Cry, uh, Cryogenically froze, I think. Is that right? Thank you. You've yes. got crypto on the head, man. Yes, yes. Cryogenic <laughs> is the word I was looking for. But this is true. Hal Finney, the uh, you know possible Satoshi, his body is frozen, and for so that when they you know thaw him, you know two centuries from now, he wanted to have money from when all these tech guys you know kind of emerge into whatever the new world is, and Bitcoin will be there. So you know that's it's kind of far out, but it's uh, also possibly true. There's a constant jeopardy that runs through the book between the law and these breakthrough currencies. We know that because we know that they've been used for nefarious reasons in the past because of their anonymity. One of the other key characters you introduce at this stage in a chapter called The Outlaw Currency is Katie Hahn. I'll prime you here with an example, an excerpt from the book. You say, Katie Hahn typed the letters F-N-U-N-L new on the new criminal file, which means first name unknown, last name unknown. It's how federal prosecutors referred to suspects yet to be identified. Hahn was glad for the opportunity to track down this FNU, LNU, whomever he was. A blonde woman brimming with energy. She had arrived in San Fran, it was 09, as someone streaking to the top of the legal world. Maybe we'll use that as a way to both introduce Katie, but also introduce the jeopardy of law and order. Yeah, let's talk about Katie Hahn for a sec. I mean, today she, uh, you know, she recently left Andreessen Horowitz, which is the famous crypto uh, uh, venture capital firm, to start her own. She's now quite rich and famous on the cover of Fortune magazine. But back then, she was a prosecutor. She, uh, you know, went to law school, clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court, which is, you know, no easy thing to do came to San Francisco to be a prosecutor at the Justice Department, was prosecuting bikers and things like that. 
However, in some of these criminal cases, they were catching criminals with Bitcoin. And so, you know, her boss there, you know, I mean, this was early days then, but he thought someone, you know, there must be sort of like a cartel behind Bitcoin, or there must be, you know, sort of some Mr. Bitcoin who was the money launderer for the criminals. So he actually asked uh, this woman, Katie Hahn, to go prosecute Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's, it's in retrospect, it's absurd, sort of like, you know, Aiden, please go prosecute like a hundred pound note. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very ridiculous idea, but that's how little law enforcement knew about it then. So she, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, your boss tells you to do something even ridiculous. Sometimes you do. So she opened a, you know, a criminal file. And, you know, that's often what they do with prosecutors. You don't know who it is, but you've got a case, you know, you, there's like a murder or whatever. And you open it for new, Al new, first name unknown, last name unknown. And she was, you know, and the point is you've solved the case, then you figure out who it is, then you put Mr. Bitcoin's name on it. But obviously, you know, that's not how it works. And it didn't take Katie Hahn long to discover that. You do such a brilliant job of educating us about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as we progress through the story. And I didn't want to jump too far ahead in the story without actually getting to this explaining Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah, okay, let's step back and say, what is Bitcoin? <clears throat> the way I explain it to most people is um, it's a computer program. You know, because it's such a you know weird thing to get your head around if you're unfamiliar. What do you mean this digital money? Why is it worth anything? But you have to understand blockchain technology, and a blockchain is simply a computer program. You can run, you know, all your listeners out there, you can go out and download Bitcoin and run it on your computer, just like Google Chrome or Microsoft Word. It's a software program. But what's distinct about blockchains are this is software that collaborates with a bunch of other people on the network, and you work together to maintain this ledger of transactions. And every 10 minutes or so, a new block is added to the blockchain. And in that block is a record of transaction, like I paid Aiden, you know, Aiden paid Sally. It's all recorded in there, and no one can tamper with it. Uh, no one is really in charge of it. And they're simply, you know, using, uh, you know, a, uh, a, you know, an algorithm. There's a mechanism by which people agree what the official transactions are and the blockchain gets longer and longer and the longer it gets the stronger it gets and of course you know every payment is recorded in someone's wallet a wallet again is just sort of a piece of software that shows how much bitcoin you own and for real beginners out there you might have heard bitcoins 50 or sixty thousand dollars Funny, a lot of people don't realize, uh, just like a dollar bill, you can cut into 100 pennies. You can cut one Bitcoin into, I think, down to 1 16th. The smallest unit is known as a Satoshi. So if you want to go out and buy Bitcoin with $5, you can. You're just going to get a tiny little bit of it. And that will show up in your, in, your, in your software wallet, and it'll be recorded on the blockchain. Everyone will know it's yours until you spend it, and, uh, and so it goes. For most people, this is a minefield, trying to understand how do I buy, buy some coins. I need the middleman. I need somebody to make it simple. And this was the opportunity that Coinbase saw and Brian saw. Yeah, exactly. I'm not particularly technically savvy either. I like reporting on it and how it changes things, but actually playing with it, I, I don't have a natural aptitude for it. But the one concept to understand, and this is a broader thing in cryptography, is uh, the idea of a public key and a private key. And the analogy people usually use is a mailbox. Uh, you can put your mailbox on the street and the front slot is open. Anyone can put something in that mailbox and send it to you. However, in the back of that mailbox is a private key. Only you have that, only you can unlock it or else other, everyone could come in and reach into your mailbox and take it. That's a bit like how a Bitcoin wallet works too. Um, you have a, a, a public key. I can, you know, publish it there, you know, for all of your listeners and 
no big deal. They can't rob me because of that. They can they can send me Bitcoin. I can use it to identify myself. However, I have a private key, and that private key is how I get to my wallet. If any of that, any of you, you know, anyone out there sees it, they could grab that, and then you know, you're always hearing about people getting hacked in Bitcoin. That's how you know you're not careful with your private key, you get robbed. That's going to happen. Um, but the, the catch with this is this is a, holding a private key is is not an easy thing. Uh, it's a long string of uh, of numbers, sort of like sixty four. You know, might be capital B exclamation mark cc it's a long unwieldy phrase um and you know there's ways to you know if you want to keep your private key there's services that can make it easier for you while you retain possession but what coinbase does and what paypal does and uh, etoro in europe does is they'll offer to do take care of that for you so rather than going through the rigmarole of controlling a public and private key you just treat it more like online banking which is so much easier However, the in reality is who actually owns your Bitcoin is is not really you. I mean, you own it, but who's in control of it is is the middleman like Coinbase. Uh, and that's a very practical way to do it. Uh, but if you're a real believer of this stuff, that's kind of anathema to what Satoshi would have wanted. So, you know, make up your own mind. People are different. But that's the tension, too. People who really believe in privacy and Bitcoin will not let someone else control their keys. So Satoshi had thought of everything which included, how do I get people how do I incentivize them to contribute their computer and their power towards the blockchain. And this is where maintainers or miners come in. And the beautiful lottery system that Satoshi had thought about in order to lure people in and then reward them for contributing their power. I'd love you to take us through this. Such a clever idea, uh, you know, because we were talking before about the blockchain. Every 10 minutes, a new batch of transactions goes there. It's the network. And you might want to do that as sort of a hobby. But, you know, do you really want to devote the time and computer power to it? But what if you could get rich doing it? And that was Satoshi's sort of ingenious mechanism. Each block, uh, there's sort of a race or competition to get for who can publish the next block. There's, you know, miners might be, you know, a guy in, you know, Brazil, and there might be one in like Slovakia and one in England. And, you know, there's thousands of them racing to do the next block. Because if you can discover the next block and add it to the chain, you get rewarded with a batch of Bitcoin. Uh, initially, you get 500 Bitcoin. You, know, you can imagine what that would be worth now. It would be worth billions. Um, and then every few years, it's halves. Then it was 250, and then it was 125. Now it's around six, which is still a nice chunk of change. But uh, you know, if you're the one to find the block, you get that reward. Um, and the, you know, the way the, uh, the reward is found, it's just basically like a, a math problem, a really hard thing. Like, what's two numbers make this? I'm explaining it sort of crudely. But the only way to solve it is trial and error. And you just deploy a computer to try all these permutations. And the, uh, the, the challenge gets harder or easier depending on how many people are on the network. If uh, more and more people join on it, they'll make the problem harder. So it still takes around 10 minutes to solve. Once you discover it, you broadcast to the network, and I was like, ah, okay, he found it, publish it, and in that block is that sort of reward is included, including its payment to you and the batch of transactions, and it continues again and again. Uh, one thing I should add, Aiden, in the early days, I, I actually remember this, people would uh, mine Bitcoin on their laptop or on their cell phone, uh, you know, and that was sort of kind of a neat hobby thing to do, but that's when there was thousands of people on the network. Now there's, you know, millions 
So the only way to mine is to buy specialized computers. You know, so you'll see these server farms. It's, it'll be like you know these places in Texas that are just like a big warehouse full of servers drawing on like solar energy. Ideally, some places unfortunately is coal, and they throw massive computer at it, power at it to solve this math problem. And for some people, this is an issue. That's like it's an environmental disaster because you know we're talking about like it's. I think some people say it's like the uh, equivalent of like Finland or Argentina. I can't remember which country just to mine Bitcoin. Um, and the Bitcoin's defenders will like, hey, a lot of it's being mined through like you know solar or hydropower so it's the big deal and then uh since also bitcoin must have was done in china until last year and that was kind of a bad scene a lot of like burning coal to mine bitcoin so the chinese kind of kicked the miners out so they've now shown up a lot of them in america now and a lot of it is now green but uh i'm sure some of your listeners will have strong opinions on that because you mentioned China there, I'm going to jump ahead in the story arc a bit, but also to connect it to some of the other shows we've had, because we talk, for example, about AI in this show and how there's a power race or a power struggle to win in the game of AI, because understanding AI and getting ahead of others is a power today. For example, Putin had said this before that AI, whoever controls AI can actually control the world. China are far ahead, for example, of Europe, way far ahead, perhaps of the US as well. We're not sure when it comes to AI. But this is a big fear when it comes to cryptocurrencies and digital currencies, because the US is highly regulated. Europe is highly regulated, unlike places like Malta, for example, in Europe, which actually has opened its arms towards cryptocurrencies to give it a competitive advantage. But China is in some ways streets ahead of both Europe and the US. Yeah, that's a good analogy. There is a race for the major new technologies of the century, including AI, but I think blockchain is one of those technologies. And there's a tension. You're right. China has launched its digital yuan, uh, which is just a superior form of payment. Because still, if you want to send banking transactions back and forth, you know, if I want to send it here from the US to Ireland, that would you know take a couple of days, which is ridiculous. Bitcoin would be done in 10 minutes. Um, so China has leapt ahead of that. However, um, you probably don't want to use China's coin because it's a privacy nightmare, uh, you know, because it's centralized. It's like a Bitcoin, but run by the Chinese government. So everything you spend can be tracked. Uh, and so I think for that reason, in the uh, in the U.S., it's not going to happen anytime soon. But you touched on another point that um, people are wary of the American system as American law enforcement has grown. And it's kind of grew out of the Patriot Act after the Iraq War. America put in all these new laws to kind of hunt down terrorist financing. Uh, but under the guise of that, a lot of people feel they've overreached and are really getting in everyone's business. So other countries are getting kind of annoyed with this. And, you know, they don't really want to be under America's financial thumb. Uh, that includes America's rivals, China and Russia. If they can break the uh, the dollar as the world's reserve currency, that would help them. They would rather it be the digital yuan or gold or Bitcoin because having the dollar be the digital reserve, be the reserve currency of the world lets America borrow cheap and have a lot of influence in other places, including over the SWIFT banking system. We're seeing this in Ukraine right now. Um, so that's why there's a push to get away from the dollar by people who are distrustful of the US or simply want more privacy. One of the big challenges that runs throughout the book, and also we understand this from people who are cryptocurrency millionaires or billionaires in some case, is that sometimes it's difficult to spend it. It's hard to get it into the system because not many stores take it, etc. Yes, 
There's those people who buy their Lambos, etc. There's the famous story, though, that origin right back in the start of Bitcoin with somebody who bought pizza with Bitcoin. The story is a bit of a myth now. It's often rolled out every year. I'd love you to take us through this because it explains one of the challenges with the early stages of cryptocurrencies. It's a challenge for Bitcoin, especially in the early days. What is it good for? Okay, it's worth money, but money is only useful if the storekeeper takes it. Uh, so in the early days, it's more theoretical. But the first kind of major example of like, hey, this actually could be used to transact is this yeah, fellow named Laszlo, I believe he's in Florida, who's like, hey, I'll, and he just put it on the internet, hey, I would like some pizza. I will pay someone 10,000 Bitcoin for two uh, like extra large Papa John pizza. And some guy in the UK said, okay, took his Bitcoin, and you know, a few hours later, the Papa John's pizza showed up. You know, and the irony, of course, is if he'd held on to that, he would be worth, you know, sort of like, I don't know, five or ten billion dollars. And every year, this poor guy is like, you know, the media shows up at his house, like, hey, buddy, how's it feel to have like, you know, blown 10,000 Bitcoin on pizza? But fortunately, he's got a sense of humor about it. But uh, it's, I think it's sometime in May, but every year, all the crypto people are into it. It's uh, Bitcoin Pizza Day, because that's sort of the symbolic first proof that you could use this stuff in the real world to buy and sell things just like you can with cash. Let's jump to another one of these key characters you introduce in the book. This time it's another early Coinbase team member. This is Olaf. I'm going to tee you up here with a quote and you can bring it whichever way you like. Olaf discovered Bitcoin in early 2011 and like other things he cared about, he didn't just like it, he obsessed over it. The child of two Lutheran pastors, Olaf had been raised to live according to his conscience and explore the meaning of justice. Later, during the financial carnage of the Great Recession, where millions of ordinary people, including his parents, had their hard-won savings wiped out, while the bank executives most responsible for it received bonuses, this is common in this world of cryptocurrency and why many people think Satoshi started this in the first place. Olaf saw Bitcoin as an economic system that could be could not be rigged and could change the world for the better. So we wouldn't see things like the Great Recession happen ever again. Bitcoin is almost is a religion. It really is. You know, people it attracts people who believe strongly in things. You know, these days less so, but these early people, including Olaf Carlson, we he's uh, now a you know he's a billionaire. He's got a house in Malibu. Um, but back then, he was just kind of like a kid in upstate New York who was uh, got into Bitcoin. And back then, the way you got it was. Um, there was no Coinbase, so you could either uh, you know, there's a site called Local Bitcoins where you'd meet someone in the street and give them cash, and they would use a QR code on their phone to send it to you, or you'd go to some sketchy website that might be God knows where, and you deposit some money through a wire transfer, and you know hope it shows up in your account. Uh, and you know there's just you know scams left and right, but the point is you really have to want it back then. Now Bitcoin's easy, but back then these people believed in it so much, they wanted it so much that they would you know in the case of Olaf's, he lived on it for three months back when it was almost you know, impossible to do, but he's in San Francisco, so he could always find someone to exchange Bitcoin with. But you know, it's it is that, yeah, that passion. These early Bitcoiners were driven by some of them are like hardcore libertarians who are afraid of the government. Some are disgusted with the banks, but they believed in it enough to kind of give their life to it. You know, which is, you know, is you know, I don't know if I'd give my life to it, but you know, they the point is they believe in it that much. It's like a religion and they take it seriously. And these early people are the ones who built the whole thing that, you know, now exists now. So at this stage, the business is starting to take shape. Brian 
and Fred had turned their apartment into the into the business into the Coinbase HQ, and they had secured Series A funding. Their apartment turned off and started to fill with people. And after Olaf came another key player, which was Craig Hamill, a talented engineer who had helped build the dating site OKCupid, despite being the fact that he was an extreme introvert. Let's build on the story here and tell the Coinbase story through cryptocurrency. Yeah, this is a common story with startups, why I like covering them, uh, and Silicon Valley as well. There's just nowhere quite like it. The mix of people who will like, you know, eat ramen noodles and work 16, 20 hours a day to build something out of nothing. And yeah, speaking one more early character, you mentioned Fred a couple times. So Brian Armstrong, the founder, after he kicked out like his would-be other founder, uh, who is a, um, I think a, an English fellow who, uh, who, and this English fellow initially, this was a fundamental tension of Coinbase starting was, um, he, uh, his name was Ben, and he hated the idea of having Coinbase control private keys. That just went against religion. So over this, he and Brian Armstrong fell out. Brian was a pragmatist, like, no, we have to do this to build Bitcoin. You know, it's sort of like, does the end justify the means? And they fell out of this. He kicked out his co-founder, brought in Fred instead. And Fred Ersom's kind of an interesting cat, too. He's, uh, uh, you know, sort of a bit of a jock. Uh, he went to Harvard Business School, and he's working at Goldman Sachs in New York on Wall Street. But in his spare time you spend it all on reddit reading about bitcoin and at goldman sachs you know if you brought it up they're like oh no that's for computer nerds uh and so you know he quit and moved to silicon valley like people do and with brian built this and then they started tracking the other people like olaf like craig hamill it's this sort of nerdy coder but the point being a startup like this you need believers who believe in the mission like this and these guys were just in san francisco apartment working around the clock you know security nightmares here and there you know technical bugs and they just worked and worked and worked until one day they raised five million dollars and you know that's of course a lot of money but you know if you look at like if you follow business at all companies are raising like a hundred million left and right but back then no one wanted to fund Bitcoin. It was, you know, too flaky. It was too dangerous. It's too much law enforcement risk. So they had to beg and plead and by some miracle got $5 million. This wasn't this long ago. I think this was in like uh, uh, 2014. Um, you know, but it, back then it was impossible to get anyone to fund Bitcoin, but they did. And of course, from there on, it took off. Let's share a little insight into Coinbase's culture because Bloomberg Businessweek described Brian and Fred as Vulcan bankers. And they were famous for the grueling interviews they'd put people through in order to filter only the best for Coinbase. Well, let's touch on this culture because this had a dramatic effect on the type of people they brought into the business. I mean, this, you know, Silicon Valley startup culture can be intense. And I mean, I think a lot of people might find it obnoxious for good reason, you know, because these people, you know, work like maniacs and glorify that. Uh, and yeah, in the early days of Coinbase, they would give these like, you know, incredible brain teasers. It sort of be these stress interviews and you had to pass it. You had to tell them something interesting they didn't know. And then also solve some like bizarre math pro problem they threw at you and gave you 10 minutes to solve. And, you know, that's what early Google did, too. And the culture, that's sort of very intense and competitive and not touchy-feely at all. But, you know, if you believe in that ethos, it's sort of the end justifies the means. And, you know, you sacrifice anything to build the company. Uh, and, you know, that's, in this case, it's a crypto company. But, you know, that's how other companies are built, too. Um, you know, and a lot of the tech giants started that way. That's just the Silicon Valley way. So it wasn't all rosy. We know that everything is born out of struggle. And this was no different for Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. There was a bust in 2014. This was the arrest of Dread Pirate Roberts. This was the toppling of Mt. Gox. 
this had a dramatic impact and it was a, a key moment in the rise and fall and rise again of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. This is uh, Bitcoin's, let's call it like awkward adolescence. It was sort of like some some dark days there. Mt. Gox uh, was the biggest platform for trading Bitcoin. Uh, it was based, I think, in Hong Kong and um, uh, or somewhere in Asia. Uh, but anyways, uh, Tokyo, I'm sorry, it's in Tokyo. Um, and this is where everyone got their Bitcoin from. But then it got hacked in a devastating fashion, like hackers got in and robbed all of the Bitcoin. Uh, so this was a caused the price of Bitcoin to collapse. Uh, it, you know, obviously the optics of it weren't good. You know, people thought it was for criminals already. This didn't help. A lot of people lost a lot of money. Uh, so that was sort of this existential early threat that Bitcoin faced. Uh, Mount Gox, by the way, just a quick aside, is a shorthand for. Um, uh, Magic the Gathering online exchange. Uh, even I'm not this nerdy. I know what Magic is. I had friends play it, but Magic is a popular board game. And a funny thing, all the early crypto people play it. It's a bit of a kind of fantasy card game. Uh, and so the guy who built Mount Gox named it after, um, well, because originally it was for trading Magic cards, then he pivoted it to Bitcoin. So just again, the you know the colorful stuff. The early Bitcoin days are really something. Um, but where else do you want to talk about uh, Silk Road? The Silk Road is such an important aspect of this because it displays the fact that cryptocurrencies because of their anonymity, you can't track people, they can be used for nefarious reasons. And they have been used for that. And they still are being used for that. And this is one of the reasons we have such a bad name around cryptocurrencies. And as you identified in the early days, why nobody would go near them. Yeah, it's been some time past, so maybe some of your listeners aren't familiar, but uh, the Silk Road was um, this online bazaar. There's still sites like this today, but this was the first and earliest one where you could buy anything. You could buy any drugs, you could buy weapons. It was just this giant free-for-all of illegal services. Um, and the guy, Ross Ulbricht, I mean, he's doing life in federal prison right now. Very smart guy, though. He went by the Dread Pirate Roberts and operated this site. Uh, there's a very good book called um, American Kingpin by Nick Bilton, which tells his story. But as an aside, Bilton mentions, he couldn't have built this but for three technologies that sort of came online. Uh, you know, about 15 years ago, one of them was uh, mass cloud computing storage. Uh, you know, being able to use like you know cheap cheap computing. The other one was the Tor, to, you know, system for browsing. Uh, but the final one was how do you pay people? Bitcoin. So that's what uh, that's what helped happened. You know, and it, it, it does underscore early Bitcoin. There's a ton of crime involved. There still is. Um, you know, Bitcoiners are very sensitive, saying you know why are you calling my thing criminal? Um, you know, and today the reality is most people who use Bitcoin are not criminals. And you know, drug cartels use hundred dollar bills and like Apple gift cards to move their profits, you know, and some people use Bitcoin. But in the early days, the percentage of Bitcoin users who were criminals was frankly pretty high. A hell of a lot of hacking goes on, Jeff, as you know well, as you cover in the book and from studying this work and researching it, etc., because it's digital. And as a result, many people have had their keys stolen, they've had their code stolen, they've had their accounts hacked, etc., etc. So that's one side of the coin excuse the pun. The other side then is what about the people who have coin and want to extract it to buy things? They have often found creative ways, let's call it that to do so and get their money out to be able to buy things 
in the open market? Yeah, that's a big challenge uh, in that, you know, Bitcoin, you can move it around, you can move it to other coins, move it back and forth. But that blockchain is visible. They can see the transactions moving back and forth. They don't know who controls the wallet. But if you're not careful, and this is how they usually get tripped up, at some point, you got to cash out. So you touch a conventional banking system where you run into things like anti-monitoring anti-money money laundering laws, know your customer laws and things like that. So that's typically how they get caught. Um, I think people recycling email addresses. There was recently this couple in New York, you might have heard about it. It was this Russian guy and his American wife, who I think they had, there was another big hack worth $4 billion, and it found out they had the keys. They were money laundering for some Russians. And they, this woman was like, his wife was like an influencer. But anyways, they, they grabbed them. But that's how they tripped up. The guy recycled the same email address at some point somewhere, and one of the online sort of law enforcement detectives found it. That's how people typically get caught. Um, you know, if you stay in Bitcoin, you're safe. But as soon as you try to move it into regular money, that's when they're really watching you. But in terms of other scams, I mean, it's if you get someone's private key or you simply hack the exchange. Uh, that's happened to almost every exchange. And you know, if you can get in there, you can start moving Bitcoin out because it's just a piece of software. It's you know easier than robbing a bank that way. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Bitcoin sites themselves too. It's like, hey, send me money, and then they will just simply vanish. Uh, you know, with your Bitcoin and your money. And that's just been part of crypto since day one because it attracts libertarian idealists and criminals. One of the really interesting ones was I've heard of people, for example, using their business account to pay for lunch, for example, for their maybe for their wife or family, etc. But some of the expensing and the creative expensing that went on <laughs> with cryptocurrencies Whereas really interesting, there's a great one that you share in the book. Oh yeah, no, this uh, the like needless to say, the tax man finally got interested. But uh, what some uh, companies were doing was uh, shady companies was buying uh, Bitcoin and writing it off like it was a computer because it's a technology. Well, as I keep saying, it's software, so maybe they have a point. But it'd be like buying gold bars and then declaring them as a tax deduction. So you know that brings us today where the uh, the uh, the tax authorities are very interested in this because there's so much money there and now they're hunting it down. But in the early days, it was a lot looser and people would try and get away with stuff like that. I love that. That's not a gold bar. That's a doorstop. That's a paperweight for my office. Moving on at this stage, we've gone through many of the peaks and troughs in Bitcoin at this stage. But you at this stage say even more important than Bitcoin's base bounce back at this stage was the appearance of a new digital currency called Ethereum. The idea for Ethereum had been set out in a Satoshi-like white paper in late 2013. Ethereum enjoyed a special advantage over Bitcoin. It had an acknowledged leader in the form of its wunderkind creator, who would become the most famous figure in cryptocurrency after Satoshi. Enter the fray. Vitalik. Yeah, if you uh, even know just a little bit about crypto, you've definitely heard of Bitcoin, but the other one you've probably heard about is Ethereum. This is the other major blockchain. It's not worth quite as much, but a lot of people think it will eclipse Bitcoin pretty soon. Um, the thing about Bitcoin, it's limited. Bitcoin is really good for recording cash transactions. If you want, you can actually inscribe messages in there. The first Bitcoin block has got a, you know, a message from uh, the Times of London, but it's not really built to do things. Uh, it's just built for moving money back and forth. Ethereum is 
built to basically be a computer program that you can do anything with. You can, and you can do something called smart contracts. You can do business deals on it. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot more sort of sophisticated and versatile, and the programming language is easier to use. I'm not saying one's better than the other because it's funny. Since crypto is so tribal, there's a lot of Bitcoin people who can't stand the Ethereum people, and vice versa. You know, to me, they're both just cool pieces of software. But Ethereum really changed the game. It let anyone basically. You know, uh, you know, run programs on it. Do the, the versatility was a lot, a lot bigger. But the other thing Ethereum can do is you can also launch other blockchains on it, and you can issue your own coins, and you can basically start your own Bitcoin on top of Ethereum. And hundreds of people have. I really loved your analogy of Ethereum as an amusement park. This really helps us grasp the concept of what it offers and how it works. Yeah, I think you know Ethereum is. It's like you pay Ethereum to get into the into the amusement park, and in this Ethereum in this amusement park, there's a lot of rides that you can go on. Uh, but all of those rides require you know a little bit of Ethereum to get on. But then you have to buy a special ticket for each individual ride. Maybe the analogy is a bit crude, but it sort of sits atop. You know, you put it well. Ethereum is a platform for a lot of these other crypto activities to go. And what happened in you know this sort of the boom of 2016, 2017 is everyone rushed in and said i'm going to build a ride give me some ethereum now and then like next year my ride will be finished and i will give you like free tokens to ride on this ride but what happened instead of course was the uh the financial incentive is a bit skewed because a lot of these new companies would raise like you know 100 million dollars of ethereum 200 million worth of ethereum and now you've got these sort of like 23 year old coders who have 200 million in the bank who are promising to finish this brand new ride for you to get on but guess what they like hey, I can ride a private jet now. I can buy all the vodka and bottle service I want. So a lot of them just kind of like ended up, you know, sort of fiddling around, not doing what they said. And some of them were just outright scams. Like I'm going to build this, you know, super roller coaster. Give me some Ethereum and you will have like lifetime Ethereum tickets when it's fair, lifetime roller coaster tickets when it's finished. But instead of actually doing that, I just abscond with the money and sit in like Tahiti or something. I was uh, pretty much a, and probably still am quite an introverted person, but I was a quiet kid and didn't mix very much, stood to myself, etc. And I didn't see it any other way. I didn't see it as being bullied or ostracized in any way. But oftentimes those types of kids were. But we're seeing a reversal in roles in this digital world. And there's a great quote by Bill Gates. He says, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. <laughs> and that was certainly the case for Bill Gates creating Microsoft. But this is also a trait that you see in a lot of these creators. Vitalik came from a background where he had a very abnormal, if you call it that, upbringing. He, did, he wasn't into normal things, etc. He was wired differently. And you can see how that's such a benefit in the world today to think differently. It certainly did. Yeah. What you talk about sort of the nerd who gets, you know, you know, wins later on is kind of a common story now. But the interesting thing about Vitalik, the founder of Ethereum, is, you know, you think of like Bill Gates as the nerd, and no one actually really liked him or Mark Zuckerberg because these guys sort of seem like, you know, you were mean to me once, now I'm gonna to mean to you, to be mean to all of you. Vitalik is sort of a special individual. He um it's like he's a genius. You know, he speaks English, Russian, Chinese. His favorite toy when he was four years old was Microsoft Excel. You know, he's like that, very on the spectrum, but 
brilliant. Uh, but the interesting thing about him, he's, uh, he's sort of a deeply human person. His, uh, his parents were uh, Russian dissidents who uh, raised him in Toronto. And I think even in the current conflict with Ukraine, even though he's ethnically Russian, he's come out and, you know, spoken up for Ukraine. And he's got this sort of deep humanity to him because a lot of crypto founders and tech founders can be kind of nasty. They remember the slights they experienced in high school. And now they're out to make up for it by, you know, buying the biggest car or, you know, throwing their money around. Vitalik likes wearing unicorn shirts and coding uh, and is, is sort of a deeply human person. I mean, he's weird as hell, but uh, he's he doesn't have that sort of meanness that a lot of these people who get rich later acquire. I didn't want to get too technical at all, Jeff, but one of the concepts that's useful to understand is hard forks. And hard fork was something that happened both in Ethereum and in blockchains in general. Perhaps you'll take us through this. This is a technical thing, but it's critical to the issue of Ethereum and other blockchains. Because the story, right, is you can't tamper with the blockchain. It's immutable. But what happened with uh, early Ethereum is there was a project on it uh, called a DAO, which was this decentralized investment club where people put their money in. They put, I think, a couple hundred million dollars in. And it was supposed to be invested based on uh, you know the rules of the code. And they said, code is law. However, someone promptly found a bug in in uh this in this code for this project and it robbed most of the money uh and this was an existential threat to early ethereum so the big question was should Vitalik kind of lead a faction to go and rewrite the blockchain go back in time and erase it and have it go in another direction that's why they call it a hard fork because the two blockchains building block at a time block at a time but if you suddenly like made it take a you know sharp 90 degree turn and build in a different direction and wipe out some of the blocks that had come before that's kind of a cardinal sin in blockchain but ethereum did this i you know, i don't think they could or would do it now but they were able to get a critical mass to agree to change the underlying computer code to rewrite the blockchain and sort of rewrite the founding myth and the history which a lot of crypto people regard as kind of heresy and very dangerous but but in early Ethereum, it's sort of like these are two bad options. Otherwise, you know, this hacker is going to you know run run away with hundreds of millions of every you know Ethereum investors, you know, uh, Ethereum, and uh, you know. So that was it's just kind of there's two books out on it now. Actually, crypto has gotten so specialized, but there's uh, two books just on Ethereum. I think one called Into the Ether, or there's three of them. Anyways, point being, if you're into this stuff, uh, as a crypto journalist named Lars Shin, who's very good, who just put out something called the Kryptonians, and there's literally like 200 pages on this hard fork thing. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a little more technical for, I think, what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, you lost me there a little bit, man, I have to admit. I'm taking a course, actually, in DeFi and decentralized finance to try and understand this a little bit more, because it takes a lot of immersion. And I think actually probably one of the best ways to, is to get involved and get your hands dirty. But back to the story, because at this stage, Coinbase is a different company. It's no longer a startup. It's no longer in the founder's apartment. It goes on to different echelons and it starts to take off. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I guess, it, you know, in one sense, Coinbase isn't that different from, you know, Apple or Facebook or these companies that start as startups and then all of a sudden get very big. Um, what Coinbase did is they built kind of a profession, you know, a layer or a service for pro professional traders. And there's you know, these people out there. I don't quite, you know, understand how they do it or why they do it, but they spend all their day trading oil, trading gold, trading wheat, but now they're trading Bitcoin. And the volumes they do it in, they, you know, sort of slinging million dollar transactions back and forth. 
Coinbase built a layer to help cater to them. And this started attracting kind of, you know, this is where we get in kind of into the weeds of finance, but there's a lot of, you know, hedge funds and, uh, you know, people like that who, you know, have a lot of money to invest. And this kind of turbocharged the crypto environment and went Bitcoin going to let bitcoin go from being sort of a private hobbyist sort of thing for individuals which it still very much is to have like the mainstream finance come in and that's where i say like i talk about in the book or the on the cover of the book is you know silicon valley comes to wall street because what began happening all these wall street bankers were looking at bitcoin saying this is cool this is the future the technology is better and there's so much money here so a lot of like the big wall street firms uh, took an interest or a lot of the people just simply left and started bitcoin funds instead and that was kind of a tipping point which is kind of you know let so much more money you know bitcoin's now more than a trillion dollar market cap uh so you know that sort of shows how you know it's that that's enormous you know that's the size of like walmart or something uh and that's sort of the big change and got sort of turbocharged by the wall street you know crowd coming in there was a really interesting part in the story that will make sense to some of our listeners and they'll understand this because it happens a lot in corporation and corporate innovation where it, an innovator is seconded to an innovation lab and meets startups, etc, and then gets poached by the startups, or goes native, if you want to call it that. This happened to Katie Hawn as well. She deeply researched the world of cryptocurrencies. And then she jumped fence and actually became a great leader in this world. Yeah, Katie Hahn, recall, is like the former Supreme Court clerk and, uh, you know, Justice Department prosecutor told to investigate Bitcoin. And she started investigating Coinbase. And the more she learned, she realized these guys weren't criminals, they were nerds. And she got the crypto bug herself, and then eventually kind of quit her government job and ended up sitting on the board of Coinbase, and is now like a massive crypto investor. I mentioned Katie Hahn is firstly, to show our audience where she is at this stage in the story, but also to shine a light on what's happening from a governmental perspective. Because at this stage, Congress don't really know what to do. They don't know how to treat this, they can't tax it, how do they rein it in because it's anonymous, etc. And one of the reasons I say that is, when we look back in the rearview mirror on this whole innovation in the world, the choices we make today, the regulations we put in place will either hamper or accelerate progress. And some governments are turning their back on digital currencies, others are embracing it warmly. And I just wanted to share your thoughts on this where it was at this stage, but also where it's all going in the future. Yeah, this is the big story right now uh, in terms of what should governments do. Because for a long time, they just kind of ignored it or said, oh, that's just for criminals and sort of the FBI would look into it a bit. But now as it's becoming so big, you know, Bitcoin and crypto is starting to, you know, challenge the dollar as a, as a mainstream payment form. Um, and then also they want the tax revenue from it. You know, people used to hide their money in Swiss bank accounts. A lot of them started hiding it in crypto. And now the government, you know, the governments want their cut as, you know, what do they say, you know, things inevitable are in life or death and taxes. And that's all come to crypto now, too. Um, and also, you know, we're seeing like things like ransomware, you know, the ransomware epidemic of the last few years was was driven by crypto. So that's caused, you know, governments and law enforcement to take a really hard look at it. And now we're at this kind of critical juncture here in the U.S. Uh, the senior Democratic Party have been quite hostile to it, uh, you know, regarding it as sort of a scam or dangerous or crime. But an interesting thing is happening within the younger generation, so many people own crypto and use it that, you know, they see it as a way for, you know, financial inclusion. 
in the U.S. too, there's a big income inequality problem here. And so poor parts of the U.S., you know, you can't find good grocery stores. But the other thing you can't find are banks uh, because, you know, the banks don't want to service low-income communities. So a lot of them are turning to crypto or for, you know, sending money overseas too. A lot of people want to send money home. Filipinos or Mexicans working in the States want to send remittances home. You know, it's worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars, but Western Union takes a big cut of it, uh, you know, 8% of whatever they're sending. Or I don't know if it's that high, but it's not cheap. It's maybe 6%. But, you know, if you use crypto, it can be almost free. And that's what actually Coinbase is experimenting with right now. So there's all these potential benefits from crypto that if they can just get the law right, you could harness, but the fear is they're simply going to crack down at it and treat it as a criminal enterprise, and that a lot of it's just going to flee to Asia or go elsewhere because you're never going to kill it. But you know what you can do is really harm the innovation. Um, last point I'll make, Aiden, is like this was a dilemma in the early days of the internet too. I guess I'm kind of old, but I remember the first internet bubble. And it seemed like all this opportunity, look at all these things you can do. But a lot of people are like, wait a minute, the internet's for crime. Look at all this pornography. Look at you know these sort of shakedowns. Who are these anonymous people? How dare they? So there's sort of a move to like try to shut down the internet because it's for crime. Um, and rarely, I wish this happened more, but at the time, the U.S. government wrote a couple of very enlightened laws to basically encourage the internet to develop in the U.S. while sort of reigning in some of the worst parts of it, but preserving the innovation and keeping it in Silicon Valley. And because that, that's, you know, meant a huge boon to the U.S. because of all the big tech companies are here. Point being, it, it, crypto, like the Internet, is a technology. It's not going to go away. You can't put technologies back in the box. Um, so the best thing you can do if you're enlightened is try to develop policies to let it flourish on your soil. If you do it badly, you'll drive it away and someone else will reap the benefit of all that innovation. So that's where we are in the U.S. right now. Um, a lot of younger people are coming around, including young politicians. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of old-time, you know, 80-year-olds don't like it, don't trust it. And, but unfortunately, a lot of 80-year-olds are running the government right now. One of the reasons I wanted to share your views on regulation there and how Congress reacted is because innovation doesn't stop, change doesn't stop, it doesn't hold up. It can be held back for a little while like a dam, but it eventually bursts through. And there's a quote here in the book that will explain where what happens next. You say, as Congress dithered, one of the most outrageous financial bubbles in modern history was swelling faster than a new celebrity's ego. Every day in 2017, someone on the internet announced a new token project. And every day people raced to buy those tokens. Never in history has there been an easier way to raise more money for more people with such little effort. The number and size of the ICOs defied logic. Staggering sums changed hands every day. This was an event many of us in this world remember, but it also sullied cryptocurrencies. It poisoned the well so that we thought all the water was spoiled. And unfortunately, this happened. And I'd love you to share this because this had a dramatic effect on the rise of cryptocurrencies and probably put the brakes on a little bit from a governmental perspective and a warning shot across the bows for many governments. Yeah, people who are, you know, been building real crypto projects, this set them back because yeah, 2016 was like the year of more scams than you can imagine. And this came about because people saw Ethereum. It's like, hey, look how much money they raised. These guys are rich. Let's do it too. I'm gonna call a blockchain. There's like one called like Dentist Coin. There's one called like Spank Coin for porn, which actually might still be here. 
But the idea was like, hey, send me all this money and, you know, we're going to, you know, I'm going to build this project and then I'll give you tokens and you'll be rich after, uh, you know, but there's a thing called securities laws where if I want to go raise money from the public and say, hey, buy shares of my company and advertise on the internet, I better register with the SEC or whoever the securities regulators in your country. You know, and these things are regulated for a good reason because it stops, you know, scammers from ripping off mom and pop too easy. I mean, scammers will find a way to rip people off no matter what. But in the crypto thing, it was so easy. You just put a white paper up, uh, you know, pretend Vitalik's on your board, put his face on it and say, send Ethereum to this address for two weeks, then we're going to build this. And voila, you got $50 million worth of Ethereum. And then you simply, you know, say, oh yeah, I'll build the project later. But then you, know, you just kind of take off. And, you know, some were just blatant scams. Some people were, you know, well-intentioned but got lazy. But it made all of crypto look a little dirty. And then people got more and more greedy. Something new would come out, like, oh, here's like you know, Ripple or XRP or all these new coins and people just rushed into it hoping to get rich. And you know, part of that's for their fault. I mean, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But all this mania, uh, you know, did not make the industry look good. Made the, the regulators come in with a ton of bricks after that. And, you know, in popular culture to this day, makes a lot of people think crypto is just one giant scam. Just again, and it's not long ago, but to, to help people recall what was going on here, because the crypto media didn't like what was going on here. And I'm going to pull an excerpt here to explain what was going on at this certain point in time. The crypto media called this flood of new currencies altcoins, as in alternative to Bitcoin. Long time Bitcoin believers had their own name for these tokens. They didn't call them Bitcoins, they called them shitcoins. Shitcoin critics claimed the new tokens were spun up on shaky technology and then flogged in fly-by-night marketing schemes. And this was the context into which many people dismissed it. They went, that's absolutely a scam. It's snake oil salesmen and women. I'm not going near that. And it's sullied the water, it's sullied the name of the purists in particular. I think so, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's again, let's go back to the early internet too. You know, there was just, uh, I see, there was uh, initial public offerings left and right and everyone's investing in the internet stocks. And 90% of those companies blew away. Some were scams, aren't here anymore. Um, the 2016 ICO bubble, same sort of phenomenon um, and, you know, except on a bigger and more egregious scale. But some of these projects were legit and today are actually kind of doing well. And a lot was learned and a lot of money was raised. And it's just kind of the cycle of, you know, business and money. Um, and you mentioned this quote there, the tulip bulbs. That's uh, Jamie Dimon. He's the CEO of the bank, JP Morgan, probably the most important bank, the most important banking CEO. And he's right to decry the scams. But, you know, I think there's something else going on in that crypto is a fundamental threat to big banks. You know, it's this sort of superior technology to move money around uh so you know they don't really the banks don't have an interest in crypto succeeding so you're seeing them work the regulators to shut it down but meanwhile a lot of their own employees are leaving to start crypto companies so you know that's just how it goes so we're moving on in time here it's 2017 and an interesting thing happens here in 2017 lamborghini the lambos posted more than a 10 percent year over year increase in sales a final dose of fuel for the crypto craze came with the launch of a spin-off that some of us have heard of, but don't really know what it means, which was a spin-off from Bitcoin called Bitcoin Cash. I'd love you to share this. Yeah, um, you know, first on Lambos, it's just such a fun thing. Crypto is so colorful, and there's all these cultural things like pizza 
Bitcoin pit today. I don't know much about cars. I don't know why Lamborghinis are the thing, but you know, people say trying to get rich of crypto. When Lambo, when Lambo, you know, it means when you have enough money to buy a Lamborghini. And then crazy thing by 2016, 2017, a lot of people had made enough money. And so you'd see like Lamborghinis driven by 20-year-olds all over the streets in New York or Miami. It's, you know, sort of lots of Lambos. Uh, you know, for better or worse. Uh it looks kind of fun to be honest. I'd like to drive one before I die. Um but in terms of Bitcoin Cash, yeah, that was just sort of a, a you know, it's not a scam, but they forked the Bitcoin blockchain uh, and said, no, this is another version of Bitcoin that's, you know, better. But uh, so this is sort of civil war going because, you know, it was just so much money at stake that and Bitcoin Cash is still around, but it's not the real Bitcoin. But, you know, there's just so much dumb money around too, you know, to offend anyone. But it's like, oh, Bitcoin Cash sounds like Bitcoin. Let's put my money in that. And, you know, the greed out there is, you know, that's what happens with manias. You know, people lose their minds. And uh, so all these sort of you know competing and fake and knockoff chains started, such as Bitcoin Cash. You mentioned a phenomenon that is so typical in innovation, which is the arrogance of success or the complacency that success gives you. And in my own book, I, I say that oftentimes we're defeated by our victories. This certainly happens in sport. The more successes you have, the more complacent you come along. All of a sudden comes a team that's much less in ability to you and beats you because you're complacent and you're just showing up at this stage. This happened in Coinbase as well. And they let in alternative coins. They let in the Winklevoss brothers who are depicted as kind of idiots in a way in the movie, The Social Network, but it's far from the reality. Maybe you'll give us a flavor of what's going on at this stage. Here we're getting into kind of a sort of typical, not typical, but like classic innovation uh, dilemmas. You're the first innovator and, you know, you're out front. Uh, you know, how do you keep your lead without, you know, getting, you know, someone eating your lunch and out innovating you? And that's what happened to Coinbase for a while. They got complacent. They had, you know, won the early days. They were the crypto company. Well, then something more kind of scrappy and freewheeling sprung up in Malta, uh, called Binance. Well, I mean, the guy who runs it, um, CZ or CZ, is uh, they call him in the states, is uh, you know this sort of brilliant uh, entrepreneur who's also willing to bend a lot of rules, and he just hopscotches around to whatever legal jurisdiction is going to give him the best terms. And he started offering a lot of the newer coins because once upon a time there's one coin, there's Bitcoin, and then there's a few of them like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum. Now there's like hundreds and thousands of them. A lot of them are dumb, but a lot of them are real things people want. And Coinbase was very slow at adapting to it because they're complacent and they got bureaucratic and stodgy and just with you know innovation and tech generally but crypto moves even faster than tech if you're not careful someone's and brian Armstrong's told me this that's what he fears most is you know someone's thing he doesn't know is not seeing is going to come out and be more innovative than him and that's what happened with binance and they started eating coinbase's lunch coinbase was able to pivot and you know kind of catch up again but you know it's 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 crypto is no different than other highly innovative industries that you you know, you might be on top one day, but you have to fight like hell to stay there or someone's going to, you know, lap you very quickly. Sure, you see it when you're covering startups is where a VC company decides, you know what, these two founders need a bit of manners here. We need them to grow up a little bit. Maybe we need to put in a head of people, a VP of culture, whatever it might be to start to shape the company a little bit more. Sometimes maybe a CFO, somebody who is better around structures, etc. And this is what happens in Coinbase. At this time, some of the original heads leave, the company starts to dissolve again, a common phenomenon that happens in startups. 
But then in comes this player, Balaji, and causes an absolute ruckus, but actually helped the organization in some way. Yes, pushed people out and demoralized them, etc., but left a, an indelible mark on the organization. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you know, corporate or startup infighting, this is really something. But to Brian Armstrong's credit, he brought in Balaji. Balaji is, um, in interviewing for the book, half the people I met called him a psychopath, but they also called him a genius. And to Brian Armstrong's credit, bringing someone in like that to shake up your company because they had suddenly gotten bureaucratic and slow. So they brought this guy in who to launch a lot more cryptocurrencies, but he was, you know, a ferocious political fighter and, you know, drove people out, made people quit. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think reintroduced that sort of hunger and innovation into Coinbase again. And then after a year later, Balaji quit and started something else. But the other tension you're going to find too is startups get bigger is the other foundering employees are often, you know, people who are really passionate too, but then the company gets too small for them because they're kind of in a second or, you know, sort of playing second fiddle. So they leave. That's what happened at Coinbase. Brian's founding partners left, most of them on good terms. But suddenly, you know, the people you built with the company with aren't there. Your company's bigger. And then suddenly you start getting like these kind of, you know, corporate people looking for jobs who don't share the same founding mission. A startup works because people believe in it. They have the same idea. But then it gets bigger. Those same people are gone. And then, you know, kind of, I won't call them opportunists, but just basically people looking for a desk job come in and that's what you're stuck with and you're a lot bigger. And how do you change the culture? How do you preserve innovation? And it's a big challenge. In Coinbase's case, they rolled the dice by bringing this guy, Balaji, who basically smashed all the furniture, but for their own good. And, uh, you know, it, in, in the long run, it helped them. They recover. We're in 2019 and stable coins start to emerge and stable coins start from the position of actually, let's be friendly with regulation and the law and let's be stable. And this is where the Winklevoss twins start to come to prominence in the game. But it's at this same time in 2019, that Facebook now meta, Facebook with a false mustache and glasses on, launched the bombshell, dropped the bombshell and mention, this is time to launch their own currency and they announced Libra. Yeah, some of you might remember this. This was a big deal. Um, Facebook wanted to get into crypto, and I think that stablecoin is basically like Bitcoin. It's an you know it's, it's an online piece of currency, but it's pegged to you know typically the dollar could be to the euro or the pound, and it's a, it's crypto, but it's backed by a reserve of real dollars, which means you get all the advantages of crypto. You know, it's faster, more efficient, can go anywhere, but without the hyper volatility. And then at this big moment, Facebook said, hey, this is a killer technology, which it is. We're going to introduce our own. And they wanted to have it set up so that basically every Facebook, which of course owns WhatsApp and Instagram, all of those users would suddenly have a crypto wallet with Facebook's money in it. Um, and from it was actually a very good idea on Facebook's part. Uh, but the government freaked out because Facebook is already in enough trouble because they sort of you know, seem to do horrible things every week. And the idea is one lawyer put it to me. It's like the only thing more threatening Facebook could have done would be raising its own army. You know, this is basically taking over the power of the purse from like the crown. Uh, and so regulators sort of kneecap Facebook and stop them. But I think we're going to see other companies do the same thing. It's a matter of time until Apple tries it or Amazon tries it just because crypto is such a superior payment method um, that I think stable coins are going to be a big sort of part of it. And, you know, in a few years from now, everyone's going to have a wallet with some stable coins in it. 
when I started my own journey trying to understand innovation and started studying books on innovation about a decade ago, and I eventually came across cryptocurrencies, the way I understood them was they replaced the lack of trust that comes when you become more distant and don't know the other party who's buying something from you. So the story I always had in my head was the show Little House on a Prairie, where you could buy from the local shop and the local shopkeeper knew who you were. If you didn't pay your bills, he'd badmate you to the whole town and your name would be Dirt. And then you could go on to the next town and it wasn't that far away and you couldn't travel so far. So word would follow you and you couldn't be this vagrant that went from town to town, etc. But as the world became more global, that wasn't the case when we could buy from people on the other side of the planet that we don't know who they are. Of course, we could get ripped off. And blockchain and this whole technology offers a trust protocol. And when I thought about the organizations who are playing towards that, and I have understood it from a very early stage, Amazon is one. That's why they have invested so much in pleasing customers. So the customer trusts that they will get their product. And if they don't, Amazon will step in as the intermediary and refund you your money. Then I thought the same for Apple, because Apple are making increasingly more plays towards becoming a bank, because they understand the movement of somebody's everything. They have all their content. And it's one of the reasons Google Wallet failed was because Google Wallet wanted access to banking details, banking data. But Apple have just bought a business that does this. And it's starting to look like they're putting the right jigsaw pieces in place in order to become a player. And that will be an absolute game changer for this already $2 trillion business. Technology, as I keep saying, doesn't go away. You can't put it back in the bottle. Crypto is with us and it's getting bigger every day. You know, there'll be, you know, booms and busts uh, right now where, you know, NFTs are everyone, that's what everyone's talking about. But the potential for that, those are, again, a type of crypto that people want to make into basically like membership passes. You know, if you want to like support your band or go to a virtual event or go to a real world event, you now, you know, in some places need NFTs and Coinbase is kind of in the middle of that. And it's, it's, it's so messy right now. But that's what makes it interesting. We can sort of, um, I guess the parable of the elephant is a good one. That's, you know, you're probably familiar with it, where there's a three blind scientists who are trying to figure out what this elephant is, and they're touching it. And one guy's touching the, ta the tail, and one guy's touching the leg, one guy's touching the trunk. And they all can say, oh, this is what it is. And they're right about the different parts, but no one's clear how it all fits together. And that's where we are with crypto right now in that, you know, it's, it's something's coming, something's happening and it's messy uh, and it's hard to use, but you know, it's, it's approaching rapidly. I think Coinbase will be at the center of it, but then one day someone's going to depose Coinbase because they're going to be faster, more innovative, more hungry and build a better product. And, you know, that's just the sort of story of innovation and technology. Jeff, what a beautiful way to finish today's show. And I have a quote that I'd love to pull to explains it and explains the spirit of this book and the spirit of this change that we're going through in society. Before I go there, where can people find you for keynotes, for moderating, for emceeing events, etc, etc? Where can they find you? 
Uh, I appreciate that, Aiden. Uh, my name is uh, Jeff John Roberts. Type that in. You'll find me. You'll find my website with my email. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, DM me. I love conversations, so please reach out. I do do speaking engagements and uh, moderating and all sorts of good stuff. So um, I just also want to thank you, Aiden. I really like the diligent, uh, thoughtful way you approach your show. High praise coming from you, man, and I really appreciate that. And the diligence with which you wrote this book is evident. I highly recommend it. I'm going to give a final quote and then close today's show. The hardest part, you tell us, about getting a new network effect-based technology is the start. And crypto seems to have overcome that initial inertia. The next 20 years, much like the internet, is likely to awe us in ways none of us can predict. Author of Kings of Crypto, one startup's quest to take cryptocurrency out of Silicon Valley and onto Wall Street. Jeff John Roberts, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. What an incredible episode. I learned so much from the book, and I hope you did from the episode today. Don't forget the book is Kings of Crypto. You can win a copy by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of that book. I want to thank, before we finish, our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai, and by checking out them, you're supporting us at hellozai.com. Have a great week. See you next week.